Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Um, yeah, so this is based on the Hans Christian Andersen story, The Little Mermaid, um, and it's called The Daughter Cells, and I don't know how familiar you are with the original story, but there's a mermaid, she'd like a soul, she'd also like a man, preferably both at the same time, but she'll take what she can get. <laughs> and uh, this is the story of, she's already seen him, she's already decided, I need that. Um, and she's, she's now trying to engineer a sort of like meeting uh, and he conveniently happens to drown. So <laughs> she saves him. So she has just saved him. His eyes were closed and he seemed not to take a bit of interest in the goings on around him for there was still a great deal of thrashing going on just under the waves. The girl, being fair-minded, was careful not to attribute this to indifference and so did not hold his lack of curiosity against him but tucked him squarely under her left arm and made for shore, mindful that his head faced upward. <laughs> it was a generally clumsy and inefficient form of travel, but like any good administrator, she never held anyone responsible for their natural limitations. <laughs> the prince remained similarly useless once they reached the shore, and since his head seemed determined to loll about on his neck, she was compelled to steady him with one hand on either side of his face. His eyes still did not open, but his mouth hung slack, so she closed it. You're very quiet, the girl told him. She frowned meditatively. I don't mind it. You may kiss me if you like. <laughs> the prince said nothing at all to that, so she kissed his forehead and pushed back his damp hair and kissed him again. The prince's assets, silence, introspection, slowness to judgment, pliability, <laughs> all spoke of good breeding and more than compensated for his lack of seaworthiness. <laughs> He also had, it seemed, the quality of loveliness, or at least, the girl thought, is recognizably lovely to others of his own species when he is awake, which was much the same thing. <laughs> Soon the morning had scrubbed both storm and ship clean from the horizon, and still the prince's eyes did not open. She had never seen anyone who lived above water so placid before. It seemed eminently sensible, and so she decided to love him for it. She was just delighted that she had been away from home for less than a day, and already had found something useful to do. Considering further delay unnecessary, the girl dove back into the sea and tucked herself just beneath the waves so that she might not have to see him wake up. A little further down the shore was a long, low building, and a number of people surged out of its doors onto the sand and busied themselves about the prince. One of them sank next to him and pressed his hand tenderly. He soon opened his eyes and sat up, and the activity on the beach consequently increased. When she saw the prince disappear behind the front doors of the building, the girl considered him unlikely to drown again, and so she swam, out, swam further out into the waves, slipped over neatly, and made for home. She had kissed him, and she had kept his lungs from getting wet. This made him hers, according to the laws of most commonsensical people. It certainly made him more hers than anyone else's, which meant there was a great deal to attend to before she was finally ready to challenge any front door's claim on him. Everyone at home made much of her return, and she let herself be fussed over with patient indifference. If human beings are not drowned said the girl to her grandmother once she'd been thoroughly scrubbed and fated. Can anything else kill them? Are they like sea grass or like seals? Will the same one return again if I yank it up by the roots or will it die? <laughs> humans die, said the grandmother, and humans suffer too, for they lead short lives, and when they are dead, no one eats them. They are stuffed in boxes and hidden in the dirt, or else set on fire and turned into cinders, so no one else can make any use of them. They are a prodigiously selfish species and consider themselves their own private property, even in death. The prince would never be so miserly as to deny himself to any fellow citizen, citizen, whether he is living or dead, I'm sure, the girl said. For I could never love anyone who was not civic-minded. <laughs> I'm very sure that I love him. That's all very good, her grandmother said. But if he is to make his home here with us, you must make him promise to let us eat him when he is dead. <laughs> as you and I will be eaten. I am sure that he can be persuaded, the girl said. He was very persuadable when I fell in love with him. You know he is the only prince they have at all up there. He has no sisters or colleagues to share his burden or offer him advice. It is a singular place, and everyone seems quite determinedly alone, and I think he will be grateful to learn that there are more reciprocal ways of living. They are powerfully ungenerous, her grandmother agreed. They do not think of the future as we do. Each one keeps a little soul all locked away for himself, and once their bodies are used up, 
Their souls go off somewhere else that no one else can reach and continue on in perfect isolation forever and ever. But what a terrible waste that must be, cried the girl. I can think of a dozen better things I could do with a soul. More's the pity you haven't got one, for I have no doubt you could put a soul to a great deal of good use. I should like to get a soul, said the girl. The prince has one already. I might have his. I put my mouth on his mouth, and surely that counts for something, even among savages. <laughs> well, getting a soul takes suffering and solitude, said her grandmother. We are much better off than they are, no matter how they squander their birthright. I've suffered already, said the girl. Not much, perhaps, but I'd still like to get something for it. You could, said her grandmother. If the prince were to love you such that his own people were nothing to him, and if he forgot the two parents who made him, and if all his thoughts were yours, and if he were wed to you with his full heart, then his soul could become yours, and you would gain a share in his eternity. The girl thought of the prince, quiet and still on the sand with his eyes closed, and she thought about gaining something from him. She considered his soul quite her own already, minus a few necessary formalities. The very next day, the girl swam out from her father's house to visit the sea witch. She didn't call her a sea witch, obviously. Because people who live there don't go around affixing the word sea to anything any more than you would speak of visiting your land doctor or your dirt grocer. <laughs> and she didn't call her a witch either, as a matter of fact, but no translation is perfect, and for our present purposes, there's not much more you need to understand about the sort of person the sea witch was. After all, it was true that she lived in the sea. And it was true that she could make things happen that other people couldn't. She was a very effective and useful person, which meant, as far as the girl was concerned, although you will remember that you would never call her a girl if you got a good look at her, a sea witch was just another sort of king's daughter. Now here is what the sea witch looked like. She was hinged neatly in the middle. She could jump very high by bending and straightening her great foot. She could whistle water through her teeth and hit a swimming fish 100 yards away, and she had no head at all. She was lovely to look at. <laughs> and here's what the sea witch's house looked like. It was composed of a hundred white chimneys that shot out merry little clouds of particulate all night and day. The chimneys were crusted in mottled bits of iron and long drips of sulfide and flanked with lovely pale calcium blooms. Out of this smoking corridor grew two worms, which the sea witch tended herself, and which had no faces at all, only pale slender midguts and foreguts that concluded in a red mouth that danced in the current. The mouths turned and followed carefully everything that swam by. The sea witch's home was bounded by a dead brine pool and old dripping waterfalls, and a soft shower of marine snow was always pattering lightly against the roof of her chimney palace. It was too hot and too cold and too wriggling for anyone else to live there, so the sea witch owned it. She turned it out quite neatly, too. The girl felt the worms twitching underneath as she swam, mouthing at her limbs softly as she passed over. She went faster until she came to a chimney that would have looked to you like a squat stone beehive. It didn't look like a beehive to her, but what she thought it looked like wouldn't mean anything to you. <laughs> Anyhow, it was in this chimney that the witch lived, and so it was to this chimney that the girl came. Good day and well met, girl, said the witch, spitting a long stream of maker on the floor in welcome. Come in then and bring your business with you. Good day and thanks, mother, the girl said, who was polite as well as efficient. I'm off to get a soul, and a prince besides, if I can manage it. Can't see what need you have for one, the witch said. What will you do with it? Oh, I haven't got any plans exactly, the girl said. Only I'm good at figuring out what to do with things. And the ones that have the things to begin with don't seem interested in putting them to use, just in keeping them where they already are. Okay. Pretty fun book. So you used to have this website? I had a whole website. I had half of a whole website. It was not all mine. Um, what's it called again? It's called The Toast. Right, right, right. Um, you've been online, I see. Um, and this came from a series in The Toast. It did, it did. It also came from a moment of spite, but it mostly came from the time. <laughs> tell us about the moment of spite. I would love to tell you about the moment of spite. It's fun spite. It's fun spite. I was once, long, long ago, asked to contribute a chapter to an anthology mm -hmm. um, of fairy tales, and I submitted uh, The Six Boy Coffins, which is in this book, mm -hmm. and they wrote back and they said, we already have two feminist stories in here, would you be willing to rewrite it? Um, <laughs> and I said I would not. 
And then I, I've just been dragging my heels, you know, about like coming up with an idea for a second book. And then I was like, oh, I will write a book proposal in five minutes. Uh, and I sent one over to my editor immediately. And the one like act of restraint I have had in this is that I have not sent it to that editor <laughs> with like a sweet note. That's like the one thing I haven't let myself do. I want to beg you to name and shame. Yeah. I will tell you afterwards. <laughs> Absolutely, I will tell you afterwards. Is this yeah. a side benefit of being friends with the author? I did okay. Like it worked out fine. Yeah. They're fine. I'm fine. Everybody's fine. You're all here. That's wonderful. <laughs> okay. Well, but the, the title of the series on the toast was Ch Children's Stories Made Horrific. Yeah, which I felt really bad about because like these are not necessarily all children's stories and I don't necessarily think that just going for maximum horror was the goal, which is part of why it's not on the book. But yeah, absolutely. Like it did come from that original thought, which was just like, these stories are upsetting. Let's see how far we can take them. <laughs> right, right. Because um, that's one of the things I was going to ask you about. So the story that she just read, just read you has something to do with another story, which is called... I don't know. I, I straight up do not know. Oh, Just the Little Mermaid? That's still the one we're talking about? I thought I thought this was one of those stories where I put two stories together and I forgot which the other one was. Just the Little Mermaid. Yes, yes. This is a, a reworking of The Little Mermaid. Right, right. Which, like, how can you get to be more of a bummer than Hans Christian Andersen? <laughs> I love that dude. And he's so upsetting. He is. Like, all, if you have not read a lot of Hans Christian Andersen, I highly recommend it. He is my second favorite super bummed out gay Danish dude. The first, obviously, being Soren Kierkegaard. <laughs> But like all of the stories are like Pixar, but worse. Like it's literally just like, oh, what if all the like China dolls in your house were sad? I'm in love with like your your cutlery, but they couldn't get to the cutlery because it was in a drawer, and they just sat there and longed for one another, and then they all died. Like that's all of those stories is just what if every inanimate object in your house was in unrequited love with the other objects, and then they all died, and those were his whole stories, and then he died, and Charles Dickens hated him. Charles Dickens did hate him for good reason. We'll tell that story. Damn it. All right. <laughs> I, we, we will get back to this book in yeah. a second. But a lot of people don't know this, which was that um, in the 1800s, Hans Christian Andersen and Charles Dickens had a sort of friendly correspondence going on. Um, and at one point, Hans was like, I'm going to be in you know, the UK uh, visiting. Is it cool if I stay with you? And Charles Dickens was like, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and neither of them sort of communicated what their idea of the ideal house guest host relationship was. So Hans stayed for like mm, two months. He stayed a long time. He stayed a long time, and like Charles and the kids were all like, hey, when are you leaving? And Hans was like, never. And at one point, if memory serves, I believe this is true, he threw himself on the Dickens' front lawn crying. Because the night before, there'd been a party that he thought he was going to be the guest of honor at, but Queen Victoria showed up. <laughs> and like, understandably, people were like, she is the queen. She is the Lord's representative here on this earth. We are going to pay some attention to her. And he was like, I think that's unfair. And I relate to that a lot. Um, <laughs> And afterwards, uh, Dickens sort of based the character Uriah Heep on Hans's physical appearance, which, yeah, you're, that's the correct response. It is not good to have a character named Uriah Heep after you. Um, and they never spoke again. Well, and now they're dead. <laughs> but we are young and gloriously alive. But only for so long. But for now, like, we're better than them. Okay. Um, so, so then, but why the Little Mermaid? What attracts you about that? Oh, man. I mean, yeah, I, like, certainly it's just one of the most well-known of Hans's stories. Like, I did mm -hmm. really want to do the one about, like, the, the, there's one about, like, sad shoes, and there's another one about a sad tree, and they, I could have done that endlessly, but this was just so, like, it's all about, like, the evils of private property, and, like, taking someone's soul and stealing drowned people, and it just, it's, it's very, it works. Uh, and the ending is so upsetting and bananas. It's true, although you, that's not the ending that you have. No, I, I, I changed it due to fiction. Um, but yeah, it just it just seemed like one of those stories where there was such a like the, the title character has such a strange idea of what a soul is and what marriage is and how to go about communicating with people. And I really liked this idea of like she's from the sea and she probably likes starfish, which I find deeply upsetting. So she's probably deeply upsetting to me. And um, it was great. She creeps me out real bad. Right. I mean, in the original story, 
anybody here only seen the Disney story? I won't make you admit to it. Uh, but in the original story, she basically kills herself, more or less. Yeah, she's like given the opportunity to do murder, and she says no, thank you, and she throws herself into the sea, yeah. but it's like spared at the last minute. But yes, absolutely, it's like it becomes a daughter of the air. It becomes a daughter of the air. Which, you know, the title of the book is Daughter Cells, and it's all about like reproducing yeah. um, by yourself. And um, yeah, just this this kind of idea. Of, this is a character who wants things so much. She will do extreme things to her body. She will mm -hmm. stop talking. She will like be in constant pain. Like she wants things more than anything else in the world. But when the time comes to decide whether or not to act, there's this sort of moment of like, I don't want anything, I'm fine. And I really relate to, oh, I want things, but I'm fine. Like, yeah, and just like, here's a character who wants things so much that she will like move heaven and earth um, and change her own body. But if you actually give her the opportunity to take it, she's like, oh, no, I'll, I will opt out. No, thank you. Right, of course. Back to the sea for me. Yes. Well, Anderson really loved it when people like chose pain in order to oh, yes, he did. Right? He was very... Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right, she's exactly the same. Yeah, anytime somebody was like, I want things so bad, I'm going to make myself miserable forever, he was like, what an excellent life plan. <laughs> and again, like, really relatable. It's true, but you're not a melancholy writer as a general rule. I think that that's true. Yeah. I, I think that one of the things I do in this book, um, and one of the things that I have always enjoyed in, for example, like the writings of Shirley Jackson or Nancy Mitford, is mm -hmm. they both recognize their own tendency towards getting a little histrionic, and they hate themselves for it. Um, but they still do it. Do you know what I mean? Like in the same way that like I would love to throw myself into the sea all the time. Um, I'm a very dramatic person, and I also recognize that thing in myself. And I, I know when it's coming up, and I feel a little like, well, we can't just do that. Um, and so there will often be moments, I think, in these stories where a character will sort of say, like, isn't this a ridiculous situation to be in? How embarrassing for me. I'm still going to do it, but I just want you to know I also think that it's funny and I could make an excellent joke about the 1926 Packard um, right now before I do that. About the 1926 Packard. Uh, it might be in the book 1923, but I'm pretty sure it's 1926. Please, which I don't know, to the audience what that is. I don't know anything about cars, but in the Mary Spencer, which is the titular <laughs> story, which is a retelling of uh, the Beauty and the Beast story, um, if you remember, there's that sort of scene where the, the, the father is off to go on a business trip and he's like, what gifts do you want back? And they all say kind of outlandish things. And then the, the, the youngest daughter's like, just one rose, please. <laughs> In that way that like, I felt like myself, you know how sometimes when people are like, what do you want to do? And you're like, nothing. In a way that makes things more difficult than if you were just like, what you wanted. Um, and so I had like the other siblings get very specific about like, fancy cars, which like were from the 1920s, which again, I don't know anything about cars, but I did spend a very formative time of my life reading a lot of comedy of manners set in the 1920s. So you have a vague sense of the kind of cars people were always going bananas over, but I've only ever seen them written down. So like, I don't know how to say the word Citroen. Like, I think that's the name of the car, but I've never heard it, so I'm guessing. Yeah. But yeah, that was one of the cars that one of the characters wants, and I really admire that. I really admire the kind of character that's like, I want a 1926 fancy car, instead of like, a flower, please. Um, and so it was, I think it's very clear in that story where my sympathies lie, which is with the funniest one. Please name your favorite comedy of manners from the 1920s. Okay, so this is not from the 1920s, but I would say uh, Nightingale Wood by Stella Gibbons. A lot of people just stop and start with Comfort Farm, and I think that's a mistake, as great as Cold Comfort Farm is. Okay. Nightingale Wood, which is a, essentially a retelling of the Cinderella story, uh -huh. um, set in like 1930s interwar England. Mm -hmm. um, and I would also say both The Pursuit of Love and Love, of a cold, Love in a Cold Climate by Nancy Mitford. Right. You cannot go wrong with Nancy Mitford unless you attempt to emulate her life in any way. Um, <laughs> or think about unity at all. Or think of, well, she was at least fought her. Yeah, she, you know, but true. yeah, she, she could have done but more. She wasn't as strange as Jessica. Sorry, we we're not going to turn this into a myth. But yes, Jessica was the only one who made the correct choices. Right. The only one. Yes. Um, and then I would well, say. Some people are partial to dead. Sure, in as much as we'd all love to be a duchess. Like. <laughs> That's not a that's not a commitment. She's just wealthy. I'd like to be a duchess too. Somebody yelled at me on Twitter the other day for saying Jessica was the only good Mitford. She was and the only good one. So I was like, okay, in future I'm gonna acknowledge. No, she was just wealthy and her life was easy, which we'd all like. That's not the same thing as being the right Mitford. Her life was easy, except that she always had to explain like Diana and Unity somehow. Yeah, as she should have. That was an appropriate thing to ask her about. Um, sorry. Uh, and then the last one is this is actually from the nineteen sixties, but I've been really liking um, Sybil Bedford's um, mm -hmm. A Favorite of the Gods, which uh, NYRB just released earlier mm -hmm. or re-released earlier this year. 
Um, and that is the end of mostly books not in the 1920s. <laughs> That's true, you didn't really answer my question, you know. Um, okay, fine. Jeeves in the springtime, PG Woodhouse. Okay, well, there you go. <laughs> now that we've clarified that. Um, so, would you say that this is a humorous book? I, I think so. I don't know. Has anybody read it yet? Anybody? No. Good. Great. Fantastic. There's at least one person holding one. Hi, Grandma. Uh, <laughs> I, my grandma got a copy early. You guys know grandma's here. It makes me very happy. Yeah, yeah. Um, yes, I would say it is a humorous book. It is um, also very upsetting. Um, but it is not like a relentless march in the direction of grimness where everyone's just like, oh man, this is terrible. My limbs keep getting hacked off. Um, it's more like, a limb has been hacked off. How terrible. Let's make a joke. Um, which is all the, not that funny. But yeah, I, I would say like these are people who are exciting and interesting and vibrant people who lots of things happen to, not just upsetting things. Right. So it's like, I, I do have some friends who don't watch horror movies who have been like, could I read this book? And I'm like, I think so, but you tell me. Like, stop when you need to. Okay. But I think it's funny. You guys yeah. laughed when I was reading it. I also laughed while I was reading it. Um, I just remember when you first told me about this, you told me, um, I'm writing a book of creepy stories. That was, a, that was a, like an interest that you had. Yeah, and I like I, I can't put a lid on the jokes for yeah, like, yeah. that long. Like, I think there's like one story that's like kind of not funny at all, and that's probably, oh, I just saw my roommate from college. Oh, this is so much fun. Sorry. <laughs> this is very exciting. I don't get to come to LA as often as I would like. Um, what were they talking about? My book. Um, <laughs> yes, yeah. I, I would say like the Frog's Princess is probably the closest one I that comes to being. That one. Please do. Uh, well, uh, so what, what appeals to you about the story of the frog? Well, you, you guys know the frog prince, right? Like, the story, drop a gold ball, frog retrieves it, frog then insists on... Frog then acts like Anderson, now that I think about it. Oh, well, <laughs> that's that's yeah. Like, <laughs> and I was just up staying in the house. So, like, like, frog's like, I helped you get, like, your frisbee from over the fence. That means I live with you now. And it's just like, <laughs> what neighborhood do you live in where those are the rules? <laughs> Uh, yeah, that was one of the things that I always really love about fairy tales is as soon as you enter into one, mm -hmm. everyone seems to have this invisible agreement of like there are certain rules that everyone is bound by that we all just agree matter. Like mm -hmm. if you if somebody helps you and then they want to live with you afterwards, you have to say yes. Mm -hmm. And it's not productive in a fairy story, I think, to ask like, well, why is that? Or let's argue about that. Because I think it's the sort of like, uh, to get a little TV tropes, like the blue and orange morality of fairyland. It's just like, that's how it works. We're not here to like argue about it. That's just what happens. So just like in this story, this frog helps somebody get back like a like a bouncy ball that they like to play with, and then not just the frog, but the protagonist and the protagonist protagonist's family all agree like yes, the frog lives here now, and you have to do whatever the frog says. Um, and so there's moments where like the main character, both in the original story and in my version, is like, do I really have to do what the frog says? And everyone who has like raised this person who has been a part of their life who has like loved and helped them grow into like a young adult is like yeah that is how it works and that's just like deeply upsetting and also like deeply true right which is like sometimes when the worst things happen to us that people will like kind of do a pause and a gut check of like is that awful what just happened to me is everyone cool with this and the people you love most are like yeah super normal that was supposed to happen you're like okay okay and then you just continue as if things are normal and nothing is normal but because everyone is collectively agreeing to pretend that it's normal your life makes you feel like you have lost your mind just the act of doing something like brushing your teeth makes you think i have lost like the sky should be red right now the ground should be lava all the time what we have agreed upon is reality makes no sense to me and i guess i just have to brush my teeth now <laughs> It's quite a summation of the themes of the, the Frog Prince. Yeah, it, it, it's, like a, it's, a, it's a deeply upsetting story, and then, you know, the kind of original is like, he, he briefly turns into a prince at the very, very end, and it's like, don't worry, it's fine. But nothing is fine. Nothing is fine. She hated him. Yes. Well, also, spoiler, you don't exactly go with that ending. Well, that's no spoiler. I won't say what ending you go with, but... Right, yeah. No, it is a different... Yes. It's different in a lot of ways. Um, um, are there anywhere I kept the ending? I don't actually think so, yeah. um, which was another thing I was going to bring up. Velveteen Rabbit. Velveteen Rabbit. Because that was already as dark as it could get. So I never... <laughs> it's true, it's true. Um, I never read the Velveteen Rabbit. Oh man, are you missing out. Yeah. Uh, I blame Canada. There is, for real, in the original Velveteen Rabbit story, a character just called the Skin Horse. <laughs> and he's called that because he's made out of skin. <laughs> Skin horse. A couple of 
usually go, I was trying to think of something I could call my dog that was more upsetting than like my child, because it always really freaks me out when people be like, here's my baby, my son, my, my daughter, I am their mother, their father. And I was like, oh, I got it. He's my fur husband. <laughs> and I'm a skin wife. <laughs> and that was the sort of energy that I wanted to bring to that story. It really worked. Um, I guess like the fact that I haven't read it though brought to me to this question of would you call like the things that you're citing in here which are which include by the way like Aquinas. Um, oh, you mean the theologian everyone has to read in college? Like, yeah, yeah. don't give me that much credit. I know my college roommate is pumping her fist. <laughs> but um, are those foundational texts for you, or would you say these are like selected more or less at random? Yeah, I, I mean, in as much as like whenever, because there, there's a lot of religious references in here, and like I sort of got like your your bog standard like Western Protestant Christianity upbringing. So you know, like uh, Aquinas, the Book of Common Prayer, like you know some of the Desert Fathers, like pretty basic stuff if you're if you're coming from that particular like background. So it's nothing that's like, ooh, that's a deep cut from St. John of Chrysostom, which is like not a deep cut in itself. Like that's, that's a pretty like big mystic. Um, but yeah, yeah, so like all of these, it felt like there was a, naturally a religious element that I wanted to bring into it, especially the cast your bread upon the waters one with Aquinas, because this was all about like cataloging what one person considered to be somebody else's sins mm -hmm. in this way that felt very funny and also very mean in a way that I really love. Yes. Um, and yeah, Aquinas just felt like the thing okay. uh, of just like, well, here's what Aquinas says, which is that it's not technically a sin, but here's how I believe it led to sin, and this is why I'm murdering my son. You're delighting your grandmother right now. <laughs> She's so great. Yeah. Um, well, another thing that you that, uh, another thing that you cite here is a Donald Bartellum story. Which I had not. Is that how you say his name? I don't even know. I've never said it before. It is. I had to look it up. I'm pretty okay. sure. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. Okay. I had not read it until after I had submitted one of the chapters in this book. Okay. Which I was going to say, I don't really think of you as a Donald Bartholm reader. That's the only story of his I've ever read. Okay. Um, but no I, offense to any Donald Bartholm sooner. I love that story. I mean, I love that story. I look forward to reading more. But yeah, so I was writing the chapter that was eventually going to be The Wind in the Willows and mm -hmm. was originally The House at Pooh Corner. And then we found out that Disney still has the copyright on all those characters. And so they were like, we're going to need to cut this one. And how? Um, I was going to ask about that. Mm -hmm. so, so really, really, that's still... Uh, still under copyright. Um, and I have no interest in getting sued by Disney. Yeah. Uh, so I was trying to think of, like, do I want to write a brand new chapter? Or do I feel like I can repurpose some of this stuff? Um, and if so, what's another story that really strikes me as, like, people's friends being really upsetting towards them? And I was like, Wind in the Willis. Because right, right. Um, it's a deeply upsetting book. And so it was when I was like halfway through redoing that that my agent said, this reminds me of some of this had been threatening our friend Colby. And I said, what's that? And she sent me a link. And I was like, well, shoot. I'm already halfway into writing this story, and now I'm going to add some of that. Hmm. Yeah. So you want to describe the story a little bit? Yes. It's this wonderful, brief story of this very sensible, logical person describing why they and their friends have decided to um, murder their friend Colby. Um, and again, it's that kind of fairyland thing of like, it, at no point is ever like, here is what he had done. It, it kind of starts actually with the cask of Amontillado, which is like the thousand injuries of Fortunato I had borne as best I could. But when he ventured on insult, then I vowed revenge. Uh, it's just like, obviously, this guy had been fucking up left and right, and we couldn't take it anymore, so we had to build a gallows. Um, and it's, again, just that sort of horrifying sense of like, you are dragged along in the momentum of this story. And that person, that, that narrator, is kind of charming. They sound so sensible. They seem to have a very clear idea of what somebody else has done that they shouldn't have done that you kind of like find yourself being like, yeah, fuck Colby. Like, he's, I don't know what he did, but he should be out of here. Um, and, and it kind of felt like that way in the story, too, of just like, you just, it, it, it feels so fun to be included, mm -hmm. and everyone's just so excited, and like, we're up early in the morning, we're gonna make a day of it, and it's just kind of like, yeah, let's, let's, let's kill Mr. Toad, I guess, is what we're doing, and, and that felt really unsettling and really wonderful, and like, the ending just made me feel like someone had put a rock in my stomach, and I wanted to make someone else feel that way. It's very kind of you. It's something. Yeah. <laughs> um, so... A, a, a person who comes up a lot in all of those reviews with the beautiful words that they were reading before um, uh, is Angel Carter. And I was just going to ask, is, is she actually an influence of yours or the, the people? I read The Bloody Chamber maybe four or five years ago, okay. and I loved it. I especially loved the Bluebeard chapter. Yes. 
Um, but it was not foundational in the way that like Shirley Jackson felt foundational because like I found we've always lived in the castle in a bookstore when I was like 15 and I just went nuts. Um, so certainly like I included Angela Carter in the like book proposal because I was like that's a book of fairy stories that sold well and got good reviews so yeah. you know <laughs> please buy this one too um, but it, with this. it did not feel like a direct influence in the sense that I felt like we were doing the same thing right. um, or even that our styles were similar um, much in the same way of, this is so embarrassing I can't remember right now is it, uh, is it Robin McKinley who wrote Deerskin I think it's Robin McKinley who wrote Deerskin. I'm getting some nods yeah, in the back. Yeah, like, I love Robin McKinley, um, and I, I, I often love the stuff that she does with fairy stories, but I didn't get to them until I was in like my mid to late 20s, mm -hmm. and our styles are so different that it's one of those things where I'm like, oh man, something like that, but different, fabulous, but does not feel like, ah, I'm like sitting down and she's in my head the way Shirley Jackson does. Well, let's talk about Shirley Jackson. Please, I always want to do that. I'm really glad I didn't name my cats after Mary Cat and Constance. I mean, you have time, right? Like, yeah. you know, I know, I know. Are they too adjusted to the names? Yeah, they're too adjusted. I just got two kittens. Anyway, um... You say that like it's no big deal. Like, this is not a crowd that would really want to see <laughs> You may follow me on Twitter and there's some pictures of the kittens. I already made Michelle show me some. Yeah. Oh, seriously, they're fabulous. Yeah. Um, so, um, but yeah, uh, so... So talk about what you like about Shirley Jackson. I sure will. By the way, you guys know they're making a movie of We Will Always Live in the Castle. Finally. I know, but I'm really worried about Who did they cast as... Uh, they cast somebody that I was really like, this is either going to go great or terribly. I don't remember who it was. I can't remember it either. Well, I remember reading it. It's, yeah. it's not James McAvoy, but it's some sort of like James McAvoy type where I'm like, mm, this is either going to go great or be very irritating. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's tough to adapt beloved works of literature. It is. Especially one that is so dependent on the interior voice of a teenage person who is has violent thoughts and is wonderful but also very difficult yeah um, and is a girl yes you would know that as soon as I saw that dude's name I was like the dude from Kings <laughs> I don't know about that <laughs> I don't know about that I'm kind of mad I can kind of see him as Uncle Julian, just in like makeup, you know? Yeah. That was that. That yeah, was looking like five years older than any actresses will carry. Yeah. I am. You could tell me that dude was twenty-five, and you could tell me that dude was forty-eight, and I would believe you. <laughs> He's kind of ageless. I have only ever seen him in Kings, which was like fifteen years ago, and then in increasingly bad wigs and Marvel. <laughs> Sorry. I know everyone loves him. Yeah, he put the end of Black Panther, isn't he? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he had a second, like... It was a better wig than I've seen before. <laughs> it's true. Um, anyway. anyway none of not Shirley Jackson. Jackson. None of this is about Shirley Jackson. It's wonderful. Um, yes, I love her. I love her stuff. Um, I, I loved reading Life Among the Savages, which is like her version of a comic book. Not a comic, like a, a light-hearted book, and it's about her children. And it is as upsetting as any horror she has ever written. <laughs> like, she had the worst husband in the world, bar absolutely none. She had the worst mother in the world, bar absolutely none. And she had so many children and no help, and just lived in this very upsetting small New England town where everyone yelled at her in the grocery store. And her mother wrote her the most upsetting letters all the time that was just like, I hear you've written another book. I don't like the way you're doing your hair. Um, <laughs> Just, just, so yeah, I remember reading uh, her like light domestic fiction for Red Book and thinking like, this is a nightmare, I love her. Like, it upset me so much more than even the lottery, which also upset me. I don't want to be too like, ooh, I'm counterintuitive. Um, but yeah, just like the ways that she would describe things that would take such delight in unsettling you. The person narrating it is so charismatic, so funny, so likable. Like, the opening of We Have Always Lived in the Castle, you fall in love with her. Like. She, she is a remarkable, like, I want her to poison me. <laughs> That's all I want. Um, and, and and just draws you in and draws you in until, like, five pages in, she's imagining stepping over dead bodies in a grocery store, and you're just like, yes, do it. Um, and, and, like, the ability to make, her ability to make me feel like I just caught a fever, and now I'm going like, to act in, like, uh, like, some sort of mindless howling mob that does whatever Shirley Jackson tells me to. Like, that was so powerful um, and so compelling to me. Um, and she does it through this really targeted use of, like, humor, lightheartedness, 
acknowledgement of her own tendencies towards like, well, that's a little dramatic. Well, let's do something funnier. And I'm like, oh, that works so much better than being dramatic because now I'm even more bound to your side. <laughs> so she's wonderful. And if you haven't read Shirley Jackson, you have a lot of joy ahead of you. You ever read Hangsman? I can't. I also can't, can't pronounce that title. Um, I would, Anybody know how to pronounce that title? Hangsman. I think you're right. Hangsman. Yeah, yeah. Let's go with that. Um, no, I think I have. You'd love it. I think I have that next to my copy of The Sundial, which I also have not read. Yeah, yeah. Those are my two left to do. Yeah, years ago the publishers just like sent me like a stack of Shirley Jackson books, and I was like, Was this when the big biography came out? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's yeah, fabulous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's just follow Shirley Jackson. Yeah. She's so good. Uh, but also you. Okay. okay. How long are we doing? What time is yeah, it? Yeah, what time is it? How long have we been talking? I have no idea. About four six. Fantastic. Okay. So do another, yeah, another couple of questions and then we'll. And then we'll open it up for her. Nobody wants. Yeah, like everybody wants to talk to her. Uh, or sorry, they. You're I'm fine. Like, I you're keep talking. You're fine. It's fine. Uh, <laughs> um, so uh, okay. Do you aspire to write longer fiction? I've never even asked you this. Although, um, I said the other day, you're going to be one of the granted young novelists. I am so excited that you asked me that because I want to, but I mostly want people to say things like, man, I wish you would write longer fiction. <laughs> um, because I kind of can't imagine ever doing that. Like, I've never thought... Like, much in the same way that I've never had a really good idea for a tattoo that stayed with me longer than, like, five minutes, so I've never gotten a tattoo. I was like, a novel good idea. <laughs> and like, I think one time I like texted my agent and I was like, what if Rebecca, but no Maxim de Winter. <laughs> and she was like, yeah, that's a great idea. And I was like, all right. <laughs> uh, like I have nothing beyond that. So it, it does kind of feel like, it, it does kind of feel like somebody is like, you should invent the Gobi Desert. And I'm like, right. What a good idea. How would I make sand? <laughs> Like, I just don't know. Like, the only type of writing I've ever done is, like, very short yeah. and jokes, mostly, and it goes online right away. Um, I'm not good at waiting. I feel like I finished writing this book a hundred years ago, and um, I, I would like to. I would like to. I think I'm getting closer to it, certainly, but, like, you have to make up all kinds of stuff by yourself, right? Like, you have yeah. to invent a whole character and then other people for that person to talk to. You know who you remind me of? Go on. Dorothy Parker. Oh! Who would have said most of the same things about her writing? I mean, until the, and let's hope you're not going to end up like Dorothy Parker. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Basically, at this point, just stop writing. So that's not going to happen. But but um, yeah. But uh, one of the things I love about you is that you're kind of an accidental writer, which is what I like. Well, one of the things that my dad always used to say to us when we were not being funny was like, it's like the Algonquin round table in here. So I've always grown up with a sense of like, I have failed to be like Dorothy Parker from a very young age. Um, I think she grew up with, or she had a sense that she had failed to be a Dor Dorothy Parker, but... Which I've always admired about it. Um, yeah, yeah. And then I think I remember the first time I read Benchley, um, especially his Faulkner parody. And like between the two of them, I'm just like, that's it. Um, so maybe I'll just write a book about the two of them. Yeah. Maybe you should do that. <laughs> I feel like I'm being tricked. It's true. It's true. Uh, you do have another book in the works. I do, yes. I just sold a, a third collection book. It's a book. It's not a collection. It will be a collection of essays. Mm -hmm. um, and that's all I know so far is that. But it's going to be with... Um, it's it's going to be great, I bet. <laughs> but yeah, it's not at all. It's, it's, it's more things that are short, but it's not fiction. So that'll be... Is this my first nonfiction book then? Was the first book fiction, would you say? I don't know what to call the first book. I don't either. You transcend genres. Uh, no, I don't. No, it's, I'm just bad at describing things. It's like you can put a glossy spin on it if we want. Sweet, generous, or however you say that. Mm, I all these words I know that. that I read all the time and use, but I never say aloud. I feel like you guys can relate to this. Yeah. Like, you do an event and then you realize, I don't know how to pronounce most of the words I know. <laughs> but I think it's a thing, right? Like I agree. Learning... Reading in bed with a flashlight. Yes, exactly, exactly. Is you, if you're the kid who like reads more than you talk, Apparently, like it's a thing, it's a developmental yes. thing. Probably somebody in here actually knows more about it than me. But um, yes, I think we we might be ready for some questions. Uh, does anybody have questions, or you guys just all want to go home? Um, before we take questions from the audience, I always like to remind not that any of you would ever do this because they can tell just by looking at all of you that you are a wonderful group of people. But if you're going to ask questions, um, please make it just one question. Um, please make it a question and not a statement, um, and make it good. That's it. Those are my only questions. No pressure. Yeah, no pressure at all. You're going to do great. Just perform. Yeah. Uh, anyway, any hands? Anybody? 
If you don't, I will ask you all questions. <laughs> First one that you've seen, yeah. Here we go. Uh, if and when you feel like you're in a rut, is there like one book or one author or something, or even any piece of media you turn to? Did everybody hear that before? Oh, well, I'm happy to repeat them too. Okay. All right. um, yeah, just uh, if I'm ever feeling like I'm in a rut, or is there ever like a book or a piece of media that I turn to? Um, I'll say two things to that. One is, I have never experienced a rut because I have always um, had deadlines and I, I have made a living as a writer for the last five years and so it's just, I have written some stuff that I was not especially proud of. I have written some stuff that afterwards I'm like, wow, that was clearly just written to meet a deadline. Um, but I have not had a rut just in the sense that I had to keep paying my bills. So that is not an experience that I have encountered much as a writer. Although I've certainly experienced times when it felt like boy, this is just rehashing something I've already done before. This wasn't something I'm especially excited to have written. This was just done to complete a task. Um, so in that sense, yes, I definitely have experienced ruts. Um, and a couple of things that I turn to all the time, one of, one of them is Clone High. Which <laughs> is um, a very short-lived cartoon TV show um, from like the year 2000 with Will Forte as a young Abraham Lincoln. Uh, it is a wonderful show and I highly recommend it. Um, I will often go back to Barbara Pym, especially excellent woman, who I heard about because of Carrie Fry, the wonderful former managing editor of The All, whom we all love. Thank you for wooing Carrie Fry. She should always be wooed. Um, and, and, and Woodhouse, P.G. Woodhouse, um, especially. Actually, I don't know how to pronounce this. Is it Uckridge? Is it Eukridge? Is it the guy who was always trying to start a chicken farm? <laughs> those. Those. Those things. Uh, but mostly Clone High. And actually, The Onion's Sex House. <laughs> which is so very good. Um, I, it's all on YouTube. I highly recommend if you don't have plans afterwards, go home and watch it. It's not, don't worry, it's not, it's not blue. Um, or it's not as blue as it sounds. Um, but yeah, usually stuff that's like short, snappy, funny, um, that kind of just like resets the brain. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, like, just like, I could read a Barbara Pym book for the rest of my life. Do you know what I mean? Like, she's just, she's perfect. Other questions? Okay. Hi. Hi. Um, what bit in a story in this collection are you the most excited about? And did you feel as you wrote it, like, wow, I'm really making great work here? Oh, man. <laughs> so the question was, like, is there one bit or part of the story uh, that I'm especially proud of, and did I feel as I was writing it, like, nice? <laughs> Honestly, yes, yeah. I, I feel like a little bit of a piece of shit, but often as I was writing this book, I was like, I really like this book and I'm really glad I'm writing it. Um, I would say um, there's probably two, two, two moments that come to mind, one of which is The Fisherman and His Friend, um, where I really feel like I finally got to articulate what has always bothered me about Frog and Toad are friends. Mm. Just not to say that there's anything wrong with Frog and Toad are friends, just that sort of like careful courtesy always seems to me to be about to signal that something terrible is going to happen to me. And I got to put that into a story. Um, and then the other one was the wedding party, specifically the ending, because it felt like a sort of companion piece to Shirley Jackson's The Demon Lover, which is one of my favorite ballads slash short stories. And just that sense of like, oh, I didn't really make anything happen in this story, but I upset myself. And I'm very grateful for that. And just like that vision of, um, I don't want to spoil the story, but just that image of somebody sitting and listening for something um, made me very happy to get to write and to get to do. Um, and I was very, very excited about it. But yeah, I really liked it. It's a really, I think it's a really good book. Uh, you. So I know you best from the shows. Specifically, the like, how do you know you're in a series? Uh huh. And I'm always like, how do you synthesize the super like evocative lines in like three lines? What's your like process? Do you like walk around your home, your most ruffled cravat, like, oh, uh, yeah, the world's broken, it's cruel thing. First of all, bless you. Um, <laughs> this was not a question, it was a compliment. Um, <laughs> Which, I know really badly. Uh, yeah, it was very badly done, but I'll take it. Uh, but yes, like the, that, that sort of series was, was essentially, like, you only get that by having read, like, every novel where a woman dies in the afternoon before the age of 17. Like, that was how it happened. Like, I just, I happened to read a lot until the age of about 24, and then I was like, great, I will just set this machine in reverse and release jokes into the universe, and, like, I'm done absorbing information or learning anything and now I'm just <laughs> making references like, hey, remember how like 
people used to talk a lot about prospects, like looking out of windows in books. People were so interested in prospects. And I would mean like marriage prospects. I mean literally, like it, it felt like almost every scene in like an Austin novel where people were at a loss for words, they would say things like, you have a lovely prospect here. And I'd be like, what is a prospect? Is it just you're looking at a garden? Like, it just felt so, um, yeah, it just, I always like specific humor. I think specific humor is often really, really good, even if it, is, if it does limit your audience. Um, and it just especially, like, having taken a lot of courses in, like, you know, Brit Lit 1789 to 1914, a lot of other people also took that class. It's very common in college, so if you make jokes about that shit, you're going to get, like, a, an audience um, of a specific sort. And just ladies often died in the afternoons for reasons that seem so comprehensible. Incomprehensible to me, but like apparently in the book itself, we're like, well, it was a Thursday. <laughs> and she had a night shawl on. And I'm like, I don't even know what a day shawl is. What is this? Why is she dead? And be like, of course she died. She, she like looked at Italy. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> yeah, it's good stuff. So the question is, I also write an advice column for Slate under the name Dear Prudence. It's been a long-running column, and I'm one of several Dear Prudences who have come down the pike um, and just wondering if that influenced my fiction at all. Um, and the answer is just no. No, it's super siloed. I do Dear Prudence work Monday and Tuesday. It does not bleed over into any of the rest of my life. Um, I enjoy that work. It's very interesting and different because I have to, like, not just think of what's the funniest thing I could say here, but how can I be helpful to this specific person, while also bearing in mind that a lot of people reading... Um, might also be in similar situations, or, or is there any sort of particular bigger topic I'd like to address? Um, and I at least have not noticed any shift in the rest of my writing as a result. It's just a different job. Uh, do you have a specific morning routine that helps you get productive? Or? So I have been, yeah, this is the question about my morning routine. Uh, I have a very old dog. So I have to get up when he gets up. And he'll let me know by like kind of like staggering over to me from his spot on the bed and just going like this. And I'm like, the day has begun. <laughs> Thank you, friend. Um, but I've been working from home now for the last five years. So um, I, it sort of lost this, the, the novelty to it, which is great because it's still just as fun. It's just no longer like, now it's the thing I have to have to stay happy as opposed to this exciting thing I might get to do for another couple of years. Um, but I like to have the slowest breakfast in the world. Um, I have roughly 500 cups of tea. Um, and um, I try to, uh, what do I do? I, I have like, I, yeah, I have like a couple spots that I work in the house. And depending on where I'm sitting, that's how I know I'm about to get serious. So like, if I'm sitting at the table upright in a chair, like something's gonna happen. Um, and if I'm sitting on the like L corner of the couch, I might just be on Twitter for the next four hours. <laughs> it's anybody's guess. Um, and if I'm in bed, I will fall back asleep. Um, but yeah, so like one of the things that actually, uh, maybe I should answer your question differently, one of the things that Dear Prudence does that's really helpful is like every Monday morning, 9 to 10.30, I have to do the live chat. Um, every Monday afternoon, I have to go record the show. And so that like means I have to structure Mondays and Tuesdays in a very specific way. And I can sometimes carry that momentum all the way into Wednesday. <laughs> And then Thursday and Friday is just like anyone's guess. Like, I might watch like an entire season of Cougar Town and then at like 9 p.m. be like, I need to write a book, <laughs> or at least some of it. And then all I can think about is Cougar Town, which is a very good show. <laughs> it's very good. You should all watch it. I think it's on Hulu. It is. <laughs> Bless you. Oh, what movie would I rewrite? God, that's good. Um, this is not an answer to your question. I wish I had written Walk Hard. I didn't. <laughs> okay, what's the movie that I think had like the most potential to be fantastic and then fell down in the execution and would have specifically been improved by me? <laughs> Saved. <laughs> Saved. Yep, I remember watching it and just being like, man, oh man, as a person from this subculture, you are pulling your punches. 
Please suggest one adjustment to that movie. You know, it's been a long time. I mostly just remember watching it and being like, you could go deeper. You could go deeper. Yeah, that would be the one. You have a question over here. Oh, I was just going to signal you to the blind human who's Oh, oh, behind me. Right in front of me. In front of you. Hi, hello. So I'm scared this question is a cliche, but I'm also scared no one's going to ask it. So. Do you have any advice for a young person who's trying to be a writer and wants to have your life someday? Um, yeah, no, absolutely. And I'm glad that you're starting from a place of fear. That's always a good place. <laughs> it's just like a good place to begin anything productive. Um, so I imagine specifically what you mean when you're talking about my career is a couple of things. One is being able to make a living as a writer. Um, another one is being able to write across like several different like types of media, like online writing, um, writing books, um, writing articles, writing advice, writing jokes, that kind of a thing. Um, is there anything else that I'm leaving out that feels important? No, just being you. You're, you're great. I'd like to be you. Um, <laughs> yeah, start. Uh, there's some things I don't think you should do, but... Um, <laughs> um, I'll, I'll give a couple of pieces of advice that I feel like helped me, which was one of which was I never quit my day job until I had enough money coming in that I could cover my bills every month um, and was also able to like keep at least a couple hundred bucks in saving in case it all went to hell. Um, so for a while, it was just really helpful to me to keep a day job um, rather than just sort of like quit everything and trust that the universe would bring me something because like the universe doesn't like me. <laughs> I have to like me so much that the universe's indifference cancels itself out. Um, and I think another thing is finding a couple of editors that you really like and really trust um, and who are really interested um, not just in the things that you have to say, but in also helping you build a career, rather than just sort of like, yes, you can like churn out a couple of things that might make you look a little ridiculous in six months or a year. Um, and that can be a little like hard to find, but when you do find those editors, it's really fantastic. Um, I think it can really help to pitch them a lot and to kind of check in periodically, like, hey, I, I know that these last couple ideas didn't work. Are you cool with my continuing to pitch you? Is this working? Should I be going in a different direction? Um, for me, at least, um, going through a handful of editors rather than like trying to pitch like a particular outlet has been really helpful. I don't know if that would be as helpful for somebody else, but mostly I think making sure that you have something that's paying your bills, even if it's not writing, um, uh, you know, finding editors you trust and value, and then find a Nicole Cliff. Um, <laughs> you know, that's my best advice is finding Nicole Cliff who's like, yeah, I'll fund your weird website and be your best friend. Do you want to come to Utah? <laughs> And I did not plan for that, so just, you know, good luck with that part. Um, yeah, Nicole Cliff's a big part of it. I really got to give a big shout out to Nicole Cliff, um, to whom I dedicated this book, actually. You did? I did. She's my Tahaiwa. I know. Oh, someone got that. It's the worst, isn't it? I'm the worst. I'm so sorry. It's from the novelization of Star Trek, the motion picture. <laughs> Um, something. <laughs> like, um, a whole something. Um, what, more? I don't know. Time. I'll keep going until somebody yells at me. <laughs> a very trivial, but since someone else is speaking up, I happen to have this copy of Life Among the Savage. I wanted to see this cover. Wait, sorry. Oh, oh, wow. Is that the new cover of Life Among the Savage? May I? This person gets the horror, too. Look at the back as well. Oh, this is, f I wish you guys could see this. It's just like a very simple outline of a sinister looking child trying to hide behind the pillars. Oh, no! Oh, no, you guys, the back, it's just um, like a dim, shadowy doorway with uh, little like markers of your how, how tall your kids are getting, and it's just getting scary. And then there's just eyes, just children's eyes, needing things from you and planning things for you. Oh, man. Oh, this is very good. Oh, wow, wow, wow. I am extremely, extremely glad that you brought this with me. Thank you so much. Um, this is a great cover. Anybody else got a book they want to show now? Yeah, does anybody else? <laughs> we do have a question back there, though. Yeah. Or something. We had a hand up. Sorry. Uh, the women-oriented women are just like kind of queer librarian equivalent uh, website world has changed kind of dramatically in the last few months or few years. Mm -hmm. Uh, what websites or other outlets do you see kind of taking up the mantle of the truth? So like the airbending, the all, the those? Yeah, so the question was just sort of like uh, for sort of the corner of the internet that many of us treasure the most and the sort of shorthand Nicole and I have sometimes come up with is like queer librarians. <laughs> um, <laughs> 
which is wonderful. <laughs> um, and the sort of question was like, do I know of any or feel like there are any places that are sort of like um, creating a similar uh, environment or outlet or place for writers like the Hairpin or the Oral or, or the Toast? Um, I don't know. Honestly, I, I don't know. I feel like this is a great crowd to ask because I feel like this crowd would know, um, in part because of the book, in part because of just other things I've had going on in my life over the last year or two. I have just not been keeping up at all in the same way. So I, I, I genuinely don't know. I really don't. Um, but if anybody else does, um, feel free to let any of us know or, or, or speak to you after the after the show is over. Um, but there's, there's always something fantastic, like this much I know. Like I have been around at least long enough to see a couple iterations of sort of my corner of the internet. And there is almost always something coming up that's doing something really exciting, um, that's finding great new writers. Um, that's doing its best to to like pay people and cultivate new careers um, and talking about really idiosyncratic specific sources of delight um, and I know that that's always going on um, even if I'm not currently part of what's making the new thing um, it's always there so that is the nice thing about the internet a nice thing there's probably like as many as three nice things <laughs> anybody else oh here we go is there something right now that is there something right now that the world thinks is incredibly trivial that I think is deeply important? I mean, you've just summed up my career. Um, you know, earlier this year, something that was very important to me was the television program American Vandal. Genius! It's not just that it's a good show. It is like, like I get a little Kantian about it. Like this is the objective, beautiful, and the sublime. And if you don't like it, then just like as a, as a, as a species, we can't agree on what's good and true and pure and beautiful. Um, so that's something that I feel very powerfully about. Um, yeah, American Vandal certainly. Um, Maybe that's it. That might, that might honestly be... That and your coat, which is fantastic. Those are, I think, right now the two things I care about. Um, that's it. That's all I got. Another one over there. Did Alex Trombole do it? <laughs> I love you so much. I'm so glad you're here. Um, I'll say this. When they say that Alex Tromboli is a little bitch, I don't think they're questioning his masculinity. I think they're questioning his integrity. It's the greatest line I think has ever been written like for a television show. And I, I, I think about that guy all the time. Like, the, the character Alex Tromboli is on American Family. He's this very specific guy, you know, in high school that's just like, I don't like you. And you haven't done enough bad things to justify how much I don't like you. So you force me to confront the things in myself that I don't like. And I love him for that. And that actor does such a great job of just like, he's always, whenever he's lying, he's always like, 100%. <laughs> 100%. I bought YouTube Red so that I could watch the YouTube original movie about what if the SAT killed you, in which he plays a very minor character. Like, he and Stacey Dash are the two biggest names in that movie. And I paid money for YouTube Red to watch it. And I've seen it three times. And that's actually something I do care a lot about that doesn't matter, is YouTube Red. I don't have to watch commercials now when I watch YouTube, and it's very, very nice. Because you shouldn't have to watch 30 seconds of a commercial to watch a 30-second clip from the kids in the hall. Uh, I say. <laughs> if you could have a career for a month and be an instant expert at it, what would that career be? If I could have a career for a month and be an instant expert at it, do I lose my expertise at the end of the month? Okay, but I do lose the career. I'm just doing it for a month. Okay, is this something I either want to change or I just think it would be really fun to be good at? Um, I, I love anything that requires any sort of like technique or expertise or like word, like, 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 oh yeah, your, your flange is out of whack or something. <laughs> so anything from like dance to, to like engineering to like just like knowing what tools are like I have a, I have a, I have one tool I have a hammer and I keep it in a box under my sink and my mother bought it for me when I got a, a home and the only person who's ever used it was my sister to hang up some art I bought from some monks and I didn't want to hang myself <laughs> um, 
So anything where I could be like, oh, I have a wrench, and it's for this purpose. So like maybe, um, maybe like a museum job. <laughs> that would be cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a museum job where it's like, you know you have to like wrench the paintings or something. <laughs> Whatever job Nicolas Cage has in the American um, the National, National Treasure movie. Thank, thank you. Which, where is that third movie? The second movie came out in 2007. And it ends with a setup for a third film. And the third film has not come out and it has been 11 years. And both of them made a lot of money. There's no reason for them to just leave that money on the table. And Nicolas Cage has been working steadily. It's not that he's not working. So where is it? where he's like, well, Benjamin Franklin invented bells or whatever, and that helps him become a thief. Um, that's a... God, I love this movie. All right. I think we are at an end. Yeah, guys, thank you so much. Let's give now your... around signing books afterwards. Michelle's book is coming out a month from now. Can you can you give us a little plug for it? Oh, great. Yeah. <laughs> um, my book is called Sharp, The Women Who Made an Art of Having an Opinion, and it's about um, women critics and intellectuals from Dorothy Parker to Janet Malcolm, and I'm like the unfunniest person in the universe But right I'm now. so glad because like it's got real stuff about Joan Didion in it, it and all I know about <laughs> Yeah, you all know where this is going. I, I, Right now, but like I'm very excited to actually learn something about John Diddy, <laughs> other than just like what I think I know. See, I thought you'd gotten to the Susan Sontag part because you. Were oh, I've been skipping around. Okay, no. yeah, all right. She's not reading my book in a linear way. That's okay, though. Sorry, I'm just a non-linear thinker. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I do. Okay, yeah. Thanks, guys. I'll be around. Signing books. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.